This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Music's biggest night of the year is just hours away. It's the Grammy Awards, which, of course, you can see right here on CBS. We'll be looking at music past and present throughout the morning, and we'll start off with some singers whose voices sound too good to be true, almost challenging listeners to read my lips. Tracy Smith reports our cover story. Lip sync, that is, miming the lyrics to a pre-recorded song, has kind of become a national pastime. The question is not so much who lip syncs, but rather who doesn't. Is lip syncing a talent? Absolutely, it's a talent. There's no question yeah, about it. Yeah, if it weren't a talent, we wouldn't have a show. Ahead this Sunday morning. Fake it till you make it. From the Grammys to the Oscars, just two weeks from tonight, they'll be calling for the envelope, please, at the Academy Awards. And one frontrunner for Best Actress will feel right at home. 
because winning is something she's been doing since childhood, as she tells our Lee Cowan. See, there's nothing here. Well, let's make something clear. There's something about Emma Stone you may not know. I don't know if this is wrong or if it's right. And it has nothing to do with her celebrated performance in La La Land. I love, I love spelling. I'm, I'm, You're a champion, right? I, I did win the second grade spelling bee. Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> I still have my spelling bee trophy in my apartment. And if things go her way, it might just be sharing a shelf with an Oscar. Emma Stone, later on Sunday morning. Michael Kors made a name for himself designing clothes for celebrities, but he's made his fortune with clothes that are ready to wear by anyone. He'll share his secrets with Rita Braver. These are fun. Michael Kors' designs have a way of showing up on some of the most famous women in America. Is there a strategy for getting celebrities to wear your clothes? It turns out to be like this weird telepathy. They know we're right for them, and we know they're right for us. Later on Sunday morning, getting it right with Michael Kors. At tonight's Grammys, you can expect to see plenty of bro hugs. And if you think that's something new, Mo Rocca is here to tell you, you're right. You see it everywhere. American men are hugging more than ever before. I mean, if they're being hugged a lot and lots of affection at home with, with their dad or perhaps with their brothers, then I think that sort of spills over into other relationships. A huggy guy is more likely to come from a huggy home? We have found that to be true, yeah. Thank you, man. <laughs> Ahead on Sunday morning, guys hugging it out. <laughs> Faith Saley gives us a read on one of the hottest trends in publishing, romance novels. Steve Hartman introduces us to a couple who take that till death do us part stuff very seriously. We'll meet Ben Tracy, pinball wizard, and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Read my lips. Increasingly, it's an expression that could be applied to some of our most popular singers. Our Sunday morning cover story is reported by Tracy Smith. The hard knock life for us is the hard knock life for us. The kids of New Boston, New Hampshire brought down the house last month with their annual lip sync contest. Cute, and in a way, cutting edge. It seems that lip sync has become a whole new genre of entertainment from a popular skit on late night TV to a hit show on cable. This is Spike TV's Lip Sync Battle. More than two million viewers tune in every week to see famous people make a scene. Like Sir Ben Kingsley. If you liked him as Gandhi, you'll love him as Elton John. LL Cool J is the ringmaster, along with supermodel Chrissy Teigen. Is lip syncing a talent? 
absolutely it's a talent. There's no question yeah, about it. Yeah, if it weren't a talent, we wouldn't have a show. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> definitely, there are definitely yeah. some people we are like blown yeah. away by how good they are. What is it about lip syncing in lip general? Lip syncing. I think it's just one of those things. We sing in the shower, we sing in our cars, sometimes we lip sync, sometimes we use voice, but I think human beings, we just love music. And there's more. Lip sync apps like Musically let music lovers make and share lip sync videos. Some of these online lip syncers have millions of followers and even go on lip sync tours through a company run by Meredith Valiando Rojas called Digitour. I mean, these are people who aren't playing an instrument. They're not singing. A lot of them don't even really dance all that well. Is this an art form? I think it's a form of expression. And it's interesting because I think it's telling about this generation. They very much wanted to, what we noticed is they don't want to just observe, they want to participate. Whether or not you see it as talent, lip syncing is nothing new. We're going hopping, hopping. From 1952 to 1989, just about every performance on American Bandstand was lip synced, in part because the original Philadelphia studio was too small for a band, says author Mark Weingarten. So it basically was a size issue that the studio was just so small that. Initially it was, yeah, but then Dick Clark decided they were rolling so many acts through on a weekly basis, it was just easier for them to come in pretend to sing their song, play the record, and roll out. It was just, it was just expedient and easier that way. LL Cool J himself sang to his own record on the show in 1986. I mean, that's how they all did it back then, right? Yeah, but the interesting, the difference is, <laughs> we're really singing out loud, though. Even though they're using the masters, playing for the audience, like, in on the TV world, like, you're going in. It's just your mic's not on. So it's a little different. So it's a little that, different. Yeah, it's not... Like, you know, like a kung fu movie overdub. <laughs> you know, it's... Your it's, voice yeah, is yeah, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I was going hard. Another giant leap for lip sync, MTV. Boy, oh boy, flashback to... Mark Goodman was one of the network's original stars. It's time to rock and roll, my favorite time of the day. Goodman, who now hosts a daily radio show in New York on Sirius XM Volume Channel, says MTV really raised the bar for performance. Once MTV stepped up with, with videos and once the audience that we've kind of generated began to expect the kind of performances that you would see on a video live, well, then something's got to give. You know, you can't dance like they dance in these videos and really expect to maintain, you know, a vocal range with, with any kind of reliability. For example, Britney Spears' live stage shows are as demanding as her music videos, and her management has acknowledged that she uses a backup track now and again. Of course, the problem with trying to lip sync is that it's really hard to do well. Everything sounds fine until you screw up a word or have a technical hiccup. And after that, there's no going back. The pop duo Milli Vanilli turned out to be phony baloney when an audio glitch on stage in 1989 revealed that their hit song, Girl You Know It's True, was actually lip-synced to other singers' voices. On a Monday, I'm waiting 
And singer Ashley Simpson was caught lip-syncing to her own voice track on Saturday Night Live in 2004. She blamed a bout of severe acid reflux for ruining her real singing voice that night. Why would an artist choose to lip-sync? I think there's real reasons, like you're ill or outside performances. We talk about Super Bowl performances. There's just too many moving parts. It's cold. It's... You know, uh, your vocal cords are very tender instruments, and they're really affected by that stuff. So Beyonce wasn't taking any chances for the Obama inauguration in 2013. She pre-recorded the national anthem and mimed the words. Ditto Whitney Houston in the 1991 Super Bowl. And Mariah Carey chose to lip-sync her set this past New Year's Eve, a decision that quickly became obvious. I don't know the insides uh, on that. It is one of those situations. New Year's cold, major crowd. I thought, for the moment anyway, she was great. She rolled with it and, and put out a tweet that, you know, stuff happens. Well, that's the thing. If everybody does it, which it sounds like everybody does at one at point, point or, or another, why does everybody get so horrified when someone gets found out? I think that we uh, expect a lot of our entertainers. And, and I think that there's people who have um, fans who have felt ripped off. Of course, some artists would rather sing live all the time and let the notes fall where they may. Everybody say yeah! You know, it's art, you know? It's, it's not right or wrong. I mean, obviously me, I prefer to see, you know, if it's an actual concert with a performer, I want to be live. Mm -hmm. Like you when do. I do my concerts, LL Cool J concert, I'm live. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's background tracks and different things and choruses playing but and that stuff. Main but track. that main vocal was me. And if you busy. mess it up, then you, you put your hands in the air. <laughs> <laughs> really, isn't that what performing is? If you're a singer, then sing. Even if maybe it's not perfect. It depends on how not perfect it is, but yeah, you know, it's, it's live. I, I, I miss that, and I, I want that. I expect that. Maybe the lesson in all this is, if you're gonna lip sync, you might as well own it. There's something about being able to perform and get loose and let your hair down and be crazy and be, you know, be a, it makes you a kid forever. You're like, you know, you're just young forever. a page from our Sunday morning almanac. February 12th, 1873, 144 years ago today. The day fossil hunter Barnum Brown was born in Carbondale, Kansas. Prophetically named after circus showman P.T. Barnum, Brown was instrumental in igniting a worldwide fascination with dinosaurs, a fascination that continues to this day. As a child, Brown collected fossilized shells from mineral deposits near his home and later landed a job with the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Then, in 1902, while digging in Hell Creek, Montana, Brown discovered the partial skeleton of a huge, previously unknown dinosaur. Scientists named it Tyrannosaurus rex. 
Latin for the Tyrant King. The bones were shipped to New York and in 1906 put on display. Crowds lined up for blocks to see the beast the New York Times called a monster. A stylish man known on occasion to wear a fur coat on expeditions, Brown then unearthed a more complete skeleton, including a nearly intact skull. The T-Rex would become by far the most famous of the dinosaurs, a crowd pleaser in films like 1925's The Lost World, wrestling with the giant ape in King Kong, and of course, wreaking havoc in the Jurassic Park movies. Sinclair Dinoland. Ever the showman, Brown's last project was designing the dinosaur models, including his beloved T-Rex, for the Sinclair Oil exhibit at the 1964 New York World's Fair. Dino is the most popular souvenir sold at the fair. He would die at age 89, a few months before the fair opened. And while he never got to see his work on display, he would have been pleased that, no surprise, crowds lined up for blocks, as they still do whenever a dinosaur comes to town. Coming up, happily ever after. What's the biggest myth about romance? That they're all just sex. Tuesday is Valentine's Day, when love is on everyone's mind. But for the other 364 days, at least for some, a good romance novel is in order. With Faith Saley, let's peek between the covers. Okay, so what we're going to discuss is the sonnet from Romeo and Juliet, which is... Star-crossed lovers, the subject of a Shakespeare senior class workshop at New York's Fordham University. She's a holy shrine, right? Leading the seminar with degrees from Yale, Harvard, and Oxford, an English scholar with a surprising double life. What about what she says? To students and faculty, she's Professor Mary Bly. But to legions of readers, like those at this champagne-flowing book party that evening, she's author Eloisa James. So it's my first kidnapping. <laughs> a reigning queen of romance. How hard is it to be a Shakespeare professor by day and a romance novelist by night? It's hard. It really is hard. Romance is a really denigrated genre. I mean, it's... Academically speaking, it's less cool than porn, right? Under the Eloisa James nom de plume, she's written 22 bestsellers that sparkle with wit and always deliver what romance lovers call the H-E-A, the happily ever after. The promise of romance is that you and the people you love will, will live together into the future. It's a beautiful promise, right? Why does romance need to be defended? I think in some ways it is a genre written by women and for women and many of the sort of the people who define what real literature is in this country are male. And honestly, romance readers and romance writers don't really care all that much about what you think of us. The publishing industry sure does. Romance is a billion dollar business. making up an estimated 30% of the fiction market. 
Some books, like Fifty Shades of Grey, become Hollywood blockbusters. But it's not all about... Well, you get the picture. What's the biggest myth about romance? That they're all just sex, and that's so untrue. Sarah Wendell runs Smart Bitches Trashy Books, an online community of romance readers. What is it about romance that attracts smart bitches? <laughs> well, part of it is being told by a countless number of books, you are important, you matter, your emotions matter, your experience matters, and your happiness matters. She is one sigh away from a real wardrobe malfunction. Wendell has been devouring romance without shame for going on three decades. His shirt is actually taped down to his chest. She'll also be the first to poke fun at it, you know, lovingly. Well, there's something very strange about her. Okay, well, she's not wearing a bra, but that's okay. That's not wrong, right? No, um, no, it's fine. She looks perfect. What's... She has three hands. <gasps> As for the categories, they run the gamut. Same sex, suspense, sci-fi, pretty much everything. Let's say I want Amish love. Absolutely. Okay. I want um, dinosaurs? Yes, but mostly parody erotica. Okay. In Los Angeles, there's an entire bookstore devoted to romance called, what else, The Ripped Bodice. Checking out the store, romance rock star Beverly Jenkins. I've got a couple novellas coming out. She's another best-selling novelist, writing about African-American heroines from the 19th century, whose stories offer not only lessons in love, but history. It's about values. It's about families. It's about maybe a story that the majority culture does not associate with an African-American background. Um, hope and a bittersweet history and taking the lemons that America's given us and making lemonade out of it. A fine romance with Love, sex, empowerment, and that happily ever after. When it comes to romance novels, don't judge the book by its cover. So almost always, and I would say like virtually always, you can have a big alpha hero, but at the end, the person in charge is the heroine. End of story. You wear it with a simple... Still to come. Stretchy. <laughs> Stretchy. Love it. Stretchy. Michael Kors, Strut His Stuff. I don't know if this is wrong. And later, right. the toast of Hollywood, Emma Stone. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Designs like these have made Michael Kors a star in the fashion world. After more than 30 years in the spotlight, he's managed to stay on the cutting edge. Here's Rita Braver with our Sunday profile. Backstage, I want you to me. the models are frantically prepping to walk the runway. But out in the house, where the show will start in just minutes, one man is surprisingly serene. Over 35 years of uh, putting on fashion shows, and I don't get nervous, but I guess I'm kind of like the expectant dad. You know, this has been, this, this been 
long time coming and you want to see that gorgeous baby. And indeed, even hardened fashion critics agreed it was gorgeous. Rufus Wainwright sang his heart out. A-listers like Emily Blunt and Sienna Miller studied the first row. And models of the moment, like Kendall Jenner and Bella Hadid, strutted their stuff. 57-year-old Michael Kors took a victory lap. And why not? It's been quite a journey. If my math is right, you officially launched Michael Kors in 1981. Mm -hmm. You were like, what, 22 years old? I showed the first season, I was 21. And by the time the clothes arrived in the stores, I was 22. Oh my God. I knew nothing, I have to tell you. I didn't know what UPS was. <coughs> I mean, I didn't know how you actually delivered the clothes to the stores. Born on suburban Long Island, he started out as Carl Anderson, but his mom let him change both his first and last names when she remarried. And that wasn't all. At age five, she brought him to a fitting for her wedding gown. And I just sat in the corner making a face. And my mom said, what's wrong? And I, I said, I don't know, it, it's just way too busy. <laughs> it had bows all over, it had a lot of bows. And I said, you know what? I think it would look better without the bows. Within a few years of graduating high school, he was working at a Manhattan shop where the owners gave him a chance to design his own creations. What was the response to the pieces that the boutique started having made based oh, on your designs? Amazing. I mean, it was, it was crazy. We'd put it in the window and, you know, you immediately knew a woman would come in and say, oh, can I try it on? And she tried it on, and you said, wait, I'm onto something here. Let's do more of that. His fledgling line caught the eye of one of fashion's most powerful prognosticators, Anna Winter, then at New York Magazine. And I took the collection, and I kind of packed it into these big, messy garment bags, and I jumped on the subway, and I went off to see Anna. And I remember it was her fall issue of New York Magazine, and I was her fashion thing to look forward to. Today, as editor-in-chief of Vogue, Winter still cares enough for Coors to step out on the red carpet with him at a fundraiser he's hosting for his favorite charity, God's Love We Deliver, which provides meals to the sick. And yes, she's wearing Michael Coors. It's what is it about his work that you like? What gets you into a Michael Kors? Well, I think Michael has uh, always understood the uh, modern American woman, that he is trying to make her look the best that she can. He's less concerned about the clothes wearing the woman. He wants the woman to wear the clothes. And it doesn't hurt that some of those women are celebrities. Michelle Obama in her first official portrait, Actresses Viola Davis at this year's Golden Globes and Kate Hudson on many occasions. When a woman puts something on and her whole body changes and her energy changes and her confidence changes, he feels like he's succeeded and he really, really lives and breathes it. There are a lot of bold-faced names in the world of Michael Kors. Blake Lively wore this while she was pregnant and she wore it during the day and threw like a gray hoodie over it. At his flagship store on Madison Avenue, Coors proudly shows off his couture line, sumptuous fabrics 
with prices to match. All of this is all done by hand. And this is this dress must cost thousands of dollars. It does. It does. But you'll have it forever. And here's the crazy thing. We were talking about comfort before. Okay. Stretchy. You're kidding. Stretchy. <laughs> Stretchy. Love it. Stretchy. But the bulk of his sales and most of the almost 800 other Michael Kors stores are devoted to his lower-priced lines. He also designs clothes for men. But Kors says his clients all have similar aspirations. They want to look fashionable and current. They want to feel powerful but sexy. They want to feel youthful but not ridiculous. <laughs> Don't talk to him on. It seems hard to imagine that at one time Coors almost lost it all. In the early 1990s, the chief backer for his lower-priced line suddenly ran out of money. I, I remember thinking, well, if this doesn't work, like, you know, will I still be me? Will I still be Michael Coors? What will I do? It must have been so scary for you. Scary, and what I learned from it is you really have to stick to your guns. You know, you've got to stay focused. He rebuilt the brand. And then, in 2004, he got a call that would change his life. This is a search for the next big fashion designer. Certainly, reality, television, and fashion had not merged. You know, I, I knew the survivor. And I said, oh, are designers going to be, you know, eating bugs and killing each other? What are they going to be doing? I thought it was insane. The show, which judged the work of aspiring designers, took off, in part because of now legendary quips by Coors. I was just like, oh my God, like garbage bag couture again. Like, give me a Xanax, I'm asleep. It's tablecloth to me, I don't know. But after 10 years, Coors left the show to spend like more time on his business. Too. It's too literal, like she's dancing on yeah. a table. And his marriage with Lance LaPere. This is Lance, the this famous is Lance. Lance. This is the famous Lance. I'm so glad to meet you. His one-time intern, who's now creative director of the company. Do you ever tell him that, I don't think so, that's not a good idea. All the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> you kidding? And these days, with a net worth estimated at $1 billion, life is very bright for Michael Kors. I am so curious about what is next and what's new. I think when you lose that curiosity, you know, quite frankly, then you need to do something else. But I feel more juice today than I did when I started when I was 21. Come to these areas. Just ahead. I know the fulfillment of our creation is based on the assumption what was that question? Well, no, that's either. Remembering the world's foremost authority. It happened this past week, the loss of one of America's most unique comedic talents. Professor Irwin Corey died Monday at his home in New York City. Born in Brooklyn in 1914, Corey was raised in an orphan asylum until he was 13 when he set out on his own. He drifted into theater and stand-up comedy and would spend the next 70 years perfecting the persona of the befuddled professor billed with mock seriousness as the world's foremost authority. Oh, 
On what? No one was ever quite sure. Just after the Norman conquest, when the Israelites were chased out of northern England, and they came back during Cromwell's administration, and they took over, and then they lost Dublin. <laughs> Dressed in his signature string tie, swallowtail coat and sneakers, his hair looking as if combed with a blender, the professor would expound at length on any question. Sometimes, what was the question? Sorry, I, it, even before the question was asked. There, there hasn't been a question yet. I, I... That's one of the reasons that people are ill-informed. You've got to ask questions. <laughs> Professor Erwin Corey was 102. Up next, Pinball Wizards. Ooh. Anyone who's uh, ever played pinball knows that dreaded word, tilt. <laughs> it turns out this blast from the past is catching on with a new generation. We should note that for our Ben Tracy, this story was a labor of love. There are still factories in this country where people make things with their hands. And at this manufacturing plant near Chicago, the product they're making is definitely hands-on. All right, so full disclosure, I love pinball. <laughs> So I am biased in this story. We have something in common. <laughs> I love pinball, too. Gary Stern is president and CEO of Stern Pinball, one of the few remaining manufacturers of pinball machines in the world. It's a job that comes with one strictly imposed silver lining. We are assigned 15 minutes a day. We must play pinball. So if you don't want to play pinball, you don't belong in a pinball company. Obviously, the goal is to make money, to keep people employed, but it also seems like a big part of this has to just be fun. These aren't heart-lung machines. They're pinball machines. It is fun. Their hot new game is Ghostbusters. It's fitting because when it comes to pinball, there's something strange in the neighborhood. So-called barcades are popping up in cities all across the country. Pinball machines and vintage arcade games are paired with craft beer and a hipster crowd. It's far more social than playing video games at home or on your smartphone. This modern-day nostalgia has helped turn pinball into a bumper crop. Stern has a two-and-a-half-month backlog of orders and has recently doubled the size of its operation. You've come a long way because during the Great Recession, this was kind of on the brink. We were on the brink and we came a long way. Tenacious, people worked very hard. Others play hard. Zach Sharp is currently the number three ranked pinball player in the world. So when you tell people you are a competitive pinball player, what kind of reaction do you typically get? <laughs> he says, but I'm also married. Yeah. <laughs> his brother Josh and his father Roger play too. Why do you think there is this resurgence? Because it's so real. The physical nature of you don't know where the ball is going, and every time you flip it away, you're not sure if you'll ever see it again. The Sharp brothers compete in the International Flipper Pinball Association. 
Yes, that's a thing. Ten years ago, it started ranking its players. And in 10 years, the 500 players have grown to 45,000 players, and the 50 events per year has grown to almost 3,000 events per year. But none of this may have happened if it wasn't for Zach and Josh's dad. People say you are the guy who saved pinball. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that true? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but now, a little history. Pinball as we know it descended from an English game called Bagatelle. Then in 1931, an American company released something called Wiffleboard, the first coin-operated pinball machine. But pinball was considered a game of chance, which is to say, gambling. So for decades, pinball was banned in major cities, including Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York, where then-mayor Fiorella LaGuardia made a big show of cracking down on the sinful silver ball. The assumption was that since this was a cash business, people are putting in coins, that somehow the mob is involved. Which brings us back to Roger Sharp. He was working for GQ magazine and was a well-known flipper fanatic. So in 1976, when New York City Council was debating lifting its pinball ban, they called Sharp to testify. He played a machine to show them that pinball was indeed a game of skill. I mean, I was basically showing off and calling my shots all along. Did I say pinball? I think I altered its course. New York legalized the game, and that got the ball rolling again in most of the country. Pinball even took center stage in the Who's rock opera, Tommy. But in the 1980s and 90s, the video game made pinball seem passe. Who didn't want to play Space Invaders or Pac-Man? So pinball was kind of shunted to the side. Now it's back and running full tilt worldwide. Stern Pinball exports nearly half of the machines it makes. The company's biggest challenge? Figuring out how to use that quarter mile of wire in each pinball machine to electrify the next generation of players. What makes a machine a hit? Magic. 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 The last 2% of the design is magic. It's just magic. Yeah, you're going for the handshake. Coming up. When I think of the bro hug, it kind of starts out as a handshake. You go in. We consider the bro hug. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You've seen it. Men greeting each other with a handshake and then, is that a hug? It is. They're called bro hugs. Moraka has the anatomy of a trend. At the NFL draft these past few years, you may have noticed players and officials trading more than handshakes. I sort of think the bro hug is for young men today what the handshake has always been for men. It's not something that people read into. When they see it done, they think, okay, here's two men who are being friendly with each other, and that's it. 
Professors Corey Floyd of the University of Arizona and Mark Mormon of Baylor University have written extensively about male interpersonal communication. They describe the bro hug as a handshake hug hybrid. It's a little bit more physical, maybe even a little bit more aggressive mm -hmm. than say a hug with a woman. Right. The physicality of it, the, the shaking, the patting, the hitting, the chest thumping, mm -hmm. all of that. Yeah, we're guys. Yeah. You know, so it, so it looks more physical, it looks more rough. What are the factors that have contributed to the rise of the bro hug? I think that we're, as a culture, we're just less homophobic now. Nobody's going to object or, or think anything other than, you know, a friendly or an affectionate type of, of gesture. So it's safer to show non-romantic affection without it being misinterpreted now? I really think so, mm -hmm. yeah. I always, whenever I see one of my, my uh, guys in our fraternity, I always just go up and give them a, a good bro hug. Just to, yeah. You know, like, when you first see them, like, you just go up and give them a hug and be like, dude, what's up, man? These members of Baylor University's Phi Kappa Chi fraternity have fully embraced the bro hug. All right, Kyle, can you break down the bro hug for me? Yeah, so I think when I think of the bro hug, it kind of starts out as a handshake. You go in, um, but then it kind of just morphs into kind of like a, an embrace like this, or you, you start with a handshake, but then like throw out the arm and go in there for, a, for, a, for the essential bro hug. Mark, how essential is the back clap? It kind of signifies this is what we're doing, and then you know, now it's, it's like over. The punctuation to the sense. Yeah. But sometimes what should end with an exclamation point peters out in an unsettling question mark. The most awkward bro hug in history may have been in 2014 between then President Barack Obama and his outgoing press secretary, Jay Carney. Okay, so what happened there? That's about as bad as it gets. <laughs> one person goes for the bear hug and one goes for the bro hug. Total miscommunication. What happens there is you get one of your hands trapped in between oh, uh, two armed embrace, and so you're hugging like this, and the other guy's got both arms around you, and you don't know what to do. A man's comfort level with physical affection, says Floyd, is rooted in family. We have found that when men are very affectionate with their sons, their sons grow up to be comfortable with that. It's like this, boom, boom, like yeah. that. None of this comes as a surprise to photographer Lamont Hamilton and choreographer Andre Zachary. They're old hands at what's called dapping. I dapped with my uncles, I even dapped with my grandfather. Like for instance, if I got reprimanded for something by my, my, my pops, that would be his way of saying, you know, I had to, but everything's all good. There's it's still also, love here, because above all, the DAP is love. Giving DAP, an acronym for Dignity and Pride, is something that African-American men have been doing for a long time. However many black men there are in America, that's how many variations there are on the DAP. Take a look at this North Carolina elementary school teacher dapping with his students. We would create DAPs in elementary school, you know, like your secret handshake with, you know, your group of friends. Hamilton and Zachary's touring multimedia stage show celebrates the DAP and its surprising history. The DAP as we know it started with black soldiers during the Vietnam War. Black men were swept out of Watts, out of Chicago, out of Harlem, and sent over to Vietnam. So this was a way for black soldiers to show solidarity and say, we're together, this is our code. The hug gesture of the DAP had a very specific meaning, and that was, I'm looking I got your back and you have mine. The title of the show, Five on the Black Hand Side. 
the title is from a saying within the black community. It's like, give me five, and on the black hand side, most darker skinned black people have two-toned hands. So that was a way to say, no, no, don't give me five on the white hand side, give me five on the black hand side. Uh, okay. That's a way to connect skin. I think one thing that's been brutally misunderstood is the compassion that black men have for each other. And we always say we love each other. We have boundless um, affection for one another mm -hmm. and compassion for one another. And that ease in expressing affection is now being shown by men everywhere. Whether people want to admit it or not, people are, are tantalized by a lot of things, black culture. And when they seen people dapping, especially when it started really getting into mainstream cultures do like sports and stuff like that, it became something everybody kind of started picking up on. Still to come. See, there's nothing here. Well, Oscar hopeful, Emma Stone. I think I'll be the one to make that call. What's your call? But next, Steve Hartman <laughs> has food for thought. Many a Valentine wish comes straight from the heart, but few can match the one our Steve Hartman found. At St. Clair's Hospital in Denville, New Jersey, they still can't stop talking about it. You don't forget any call like that. A few months ago, these emergency responders got a call for a man with chest pain. And what a heart they found. First thing he said was, don't let me die. He said that to me, too. He said all he wanted to do was take his wife out to Ruth Chris for dinner. Her favorite restaurant. It's pretty cute. Those were the final words of 91-year-old Joe Lefkin. His last wish before suffering a major heart attack was to take his wife to dinner one last time. It seemed as though he loved her a great deal. His wife, Margie, can't tell you how hard it is to lose the love of your life can't tell you because her husband's death was short-lived. Oh, you're making me lunch, honey? Yes, darling. Joe was gone just 10 minutes before medics restarted his heart. And what amazed them was what he woke up shouting. He said, Ruth Chris. You know, he's coming back from the dead. He's saying the same thing. Exactly. He said exactly the same thing. Joe got his dinner with Margie. On the house, of course. But they say the greater gift is still giving. We're just closer. If that's, really? po if that's possible, is this true, Boom? Oh, yeah. She's one in a million, Steve. <laughs> I can still make her swoon. <laughs> you want to see it? Yeah. Well, no, no, take that back. Okay. <laughs> Meant no when I said yeah. Are we too much? Did you too much, yeah. <laughs> this week, couples across America will go out, assuming there will be many more Valentines to come. Here's something else. But not Joe and Margie. They will go to dinner, appreciating each other now more than ever. Steve, she's got six men. No, that don't, don't say that. Don't say that. Please I, don't say that. You're on the air. And they're all waiting for me to check out. You shouldn't say that. You've got that. so many guys that love you. You're on the air. Well, he's going to cut this all out. Please, I hope so. You gotta love. I'm going to feel the way I do. Young love. Today, because you make me feel... So young. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs>
Emma Stone has earned an Oscar nomination for her role in the movie La La Land, which means that when they call for the envelope please at the Academy Awards, her star could shine even brighter. Our Lee Cowan paid her a visit. Emma Stone may be the toast of Hollywood, but she rarely hogs the spotlight. You often see her sharing the red carpet with her younger brother, Spencer. Guys, uh-huh. you saw some darkness. You saw some darkness. And to our interview, she brought along her two best friends. We just met last week. I yeah. hired them to do this. Awesome. She needed friends for an interview. So <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, I need friends because that's more <laughs> relatable, right? <laughs> Years ago, the three were roommates, struggling actors, sometimes auditioning for the very same parts. How'd that go? We would fist fight to the death, (laughs) and then she got all of them and called it a day. (laughs) Even in their mac and cheese days, both Martha McIsaac and Sugarland Beard had a sense that Emily, as they call her, might just own this town someday. She's always known exactly where she wants to go in her career and who she wants to work with and but she was that focused oh always yeah it definitely i think if anything ever did go a little bit south or it didn't go as well as she wanted it to i I feel like you would come home with more fire for the next one city of stars are you shining just for me if you've seen la la land you know it could almost be emma stone's own story put to music Maybe I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. No. No, maybe I'm not. Yes, you are. Maybe I'm not. She plays Mia, a wannabe actress who comes to Hollywood with stars in her eyes, toils for fame and fortune, and finds love along the way. Arm in arm with frequent co-star Ryan Gosling, they are a chemically proven formula. You say there's nothing here. Well, let's make something clear. I think I'll be the one to make that call. What's your call? And though you look so cute in your polyester suit. It's wool. You're right. I'd never fall for you at all. Did you watch a lot of Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers kind of movies as you yeah. were going through this process? Just yeah. to figure I mean, out Top how it's supposed to look? Was, Top Hat was huge for yeah. us. Yeah. The energy between them um, emotionally was, was something we were... Uh, inspired by. The film is a love letter to Hollywood, and Hollywood loves it back. Stone has already sung and danced her way to a Golden Globe and a SAG Award, which has a lot of people guessing she'll have a good shot at the Oscar, too. But until a few years ago, Emma Stone was happiest with just a simple plastic blimp. The Kids' Choice Award. She swooped in to snag for her role in The Amazing Spider-Man. I grew up watching the Kids' Choice Awards and people getting slimed, and I was just like, can you imagine having a blimp? <laughs> and then I got a blimp, and I was like, well, that's, that's it for me. I'm, it. I'm signing off. Back to Arizona I go. Born in Scottsdale, Stone had a passion for acting that she put before almost anything else, which is why perhaps she takes her younger brother Spencer to all those red carpets. She owes him big. Like when I was little, we did our own little shows and she was the director and bossed me around tremendously. <laughs> you really? Yeah. So much, you have no idea. And, and she would be the star of the show and I would be everyone else. 
Which makes so me sound <laughs> like a crazy person. Yeah. Too sure as she isn't crazy. This was like your, this is your home away from home. Yes. She brought us to the place she says made her sane. It looks exactly the same. Does it? Mm -hmm. The Valley Youth Theater in downtown Phoenix. Oh, look at you. Uh, who are you? <laughs> Bob Cooper has been the artistic director here for years. He first met her at age 11, and even then saw a sparkle, and not just because of her braces. She could project very well. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because I was loud beyond belief. That means that I always talked over Bob and got in trouble. <laughs> she was willing to take any part. Didn't matter what the character was, how big the character was, she was willing to take the part. She was an acting machine, appearing in almost 20 productions before she was 15. At that point, she convinced her parents, using an admittedly geeky PowerPoint presentation, that it was time to move to Los Angeles. Did you feel like it was a tough sell? My dad instantly said yes, and my mom was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> we're gonna go in another room and have a discussion, and we're probably not gonna get back to you for a couple of weeks, because <laughs> why? And my dad was like, sure, yep, yes. Her mom, Krista, finally relented and actually moved to LA with her, guiding her through the sometimes crushing auditions. It's this strange sort of combination of a job interview and a first date and a breakup on a daily basis. Like, are you walk into a room and this could be the next seven years of your life and you can buy a house and you can travel and you can, you know, you're, you're just gonna be all around that, oh wait, never mind. okay, break up, it's over. It's never happening. Okay, I shouldn't have built that up. Next day, <laughs> next day, are you the one? Are you the one? No, God, wow, you really weren't the one and you yelled at me. <laughs> To focus herself entirely on acting, Stone was homeschooled, getting her GED right about the time she was cast in her very You're first like movie, Superbad. I thought we'd both be drunk. What does me being drunk have anything to do with it? Forget with me if you were sober. I think maybe. What the? F Help me. Ow! Was there a part of you that missed some of those experiences in, in school? I didn't think I did until I turned 22. And then all of a sudden, everybody that I had grown up with graduated from college. I was really hard on myself for, like, I'm not an educated person. You know, that didn't, I didn't take that path. And then I realized I took my path. This was my, this was my story. This was how my story went. A story that really took off after landing her first leading role in Easy A. I just realized the funniest thing. My name is an anagram for I love. What's, a, what's an anagram? Look it up, big boy. Stone's portrayal of a snarky virgin who invents a bad reputation was met with rave reviews. I'm not the one that you have to answer to for your depraved behavior. There's a higher power that will judge you for your indecency. Tom Cruise. Mm. And yet, behind the scenes, Stone was struggling. Her mom had been diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. It looked so bad, Stone almost bailed on the part altogether. I wanted to not do it, and she, she said, um, she was very dramatic about it. She was like, well, you know, if you're not doing your thing, I'm not doing my thing. And I was like, oh, you are, you know how to get me. Wow, what a rascal. So I did. And, and she did. And she did. 
And, uh, and you succeeded and so did she. Yeah. Her mom is now celebrating six years cancer-free. And in that time, she's watched her daughter become the darling of Hollywood. I'm going to be a serious writer, Mr. Blackley. From the society girl turned journalist and the help. I'm going to help with your stories. I'm trying Nobody. to do something that's important. This is not important. To the Hollywood brat in Birdman, you know the role right. that got her her first Oscar nod. It's not important, okay? You're not important. Get used to it. It's Saturday Night Live. Despite all the success, she still gets starstruck, especially by anyone from Saturday Night Live, a totem of her youth. I really just show up, and then they tell me where to go and what to do. Um, when we met up just before she hosted yeah, so. SNL for the third time last December, she was still positively giddy about just being given the chance. You sort of pinch yourself? I mean, Yeah, I don't think it ever gets normal to be here. <laughs> <laughs> may have captured that timeless Hollywood dream. And yet, Emma Stone hardly lives with her head in the clouds. I think there is maybe that notion that if you have a dream and then it comes true, everything will just be great now and you'll just be coasting. Right. But that's not how it goes. If anything, it just makes me more and more want to get closer and closer to those I love and get closer and closer to the earth <laughs> you know, like staying as firmly planted on Earth as possible because that's really it. That's it. You know, that's the real stuff. Hamburger. Uh -huh. Ahead, Mom. It's hot. Making music. Always stay humble and I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.